Well, good morning, folks. Hey, welcome to Grace Bible. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them at this point in time and turn with me to the chapter and book that Dan just read from, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to be. As you're flipping there, I'd like to introduce to you um, a video clip that we're going to begin our service uh, time with this morning. And uh, most of you are probably going to be familiar um, with the clip, if not the entire movie, in and of itself. The movie is called It's a Wonderful Life. Have you heard of it? Of course you have. Uh, It is probably one of the best, if not maybe the most singular uh, best Christmas movie ever. And you may be thinking, Trey, you have your holidays wrong. This is, this is Easter and it's not Christmas. And uh, yes, I, I realize that. It is Easter and not Christmas. Uh, but I think uh, you'll see in just a moment that the movie It's a Wonderful Life has quite a bit to teach us about how we can learn about the implications of the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the scene that we're going to see here in just one moment, I want to set it up for you. Of course, uh, the main character is George, right? George Bailey. And he uh, comes into a bit of trouble in his life, and he's very down and very depressed. And he's even contemplating taking his own life. And so God sends to him his guardian angel, whose name is Clarence. And in the scene that we're about to watch, Clarence is having a conversation with George. And at some point, George says, you know what? I wish that I had never been born. And the angel says, no, no, you don't mean that. And he has a a brief conversation with God, and he comes up with the idea of showing George the implications of that statement by showing George what the world, what his world would be like if he had never been born. So let's watch this clip together. Yeah, so you still think killing yourself would make everyone feel happier, right? Oh, I don't know. I guess you're right. I suppose it would have been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Oh, you mustn't say things like that. You... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's an idea. What do you think? Yeah, that'll do it. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been bored. You don't have to make all that fuss about it. course we know how the rest of the movie ends, right? We know that uh, the angel goes on to show, to show George uh, what life indeed would have been like if the event of his birth had not happened. Now, I don't know if you ever put any thought into it, but the thought ran across my mind about the premise of this movie. I mean, what's, what's the plot, right? What is the premise of this movie? Well, I would suggest to you it's, it's something like this. The premise of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is this. It's that the significance of a single event in history, the significance, the importance of one singular historical event, and of course in this case, the, the birth of this man, George Bailey, can be understood better, can be understood more fully by asking a simple question. And the question is this, what if that event never happened? What if George Bailey was never born? What if that particular event never happened? What would life 
be like? What would the implications be? We can take this question and apply it to other historical events. I'll just give you one example. We can take that question and apply it to, of course, one of the most important events in our American history, the Civil War. So what if it never happened? What if the Civil War never happened? Well, race-based slavery may still be in existence today. We see the tremendous impact and implications of that particular event by asking the question, what if it never, ha- never happened? Of course, asking this question, what if it never happened, helps us see the implications of an event. But there is another question, a kind of a companion yet opposite question that we can ask that, that will also help us understand the significance of a historical event. Not just asking what if it never happened, but, but asking the follow-up question, what is true or what is real? What is reality? Because it did happen. That is, what is life like for us today? Because the event actually did occur. I think asking these two questions helps us understand the full scope of the implications of a particular event. Now, of course, today is Easter. So what particular event do you think we're going to be talking about? We'll be talking about the resurrection of Christ. And what we're going to do this morning is see that as we look in our Bibles, and as we look into 1 Corinthians 15, particularly starting in verse 12, we see Paul uses this two-question approach. He, he first of all asks the question, what if Jesus wasn't raised? What if Jesus is still dead? What if Jesus was not raised from the dead? He essentially asks that question in verses 12 through 19. But he doesn't stop there because what he, what he does is he asks the follow-up question. He asks the question, well, what is? What is reality? What is available to you and I as human beings made in God's image? What is the reality for Christians in particular? Because Christ indeed has been raised. Well, he examines that more thoroughly starting in verse 20 of chapter 15, and running all the way through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 58. We're not going to look at the whole tail end of that chapter, but we'll look at some selected verses. I would suggest to you this morning that the resurrection of Christ, the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is the most single significant event, not in American history, but in all of history, in all of the history of all of the world, that that may be for us the most singular important event. And Paul's going to flesh that out for us by showing us what I, what I will call some Easter implication. What does it matter for you and me, those of us who place our faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is raised from the dead? So two questions. Follow along with me if you have your Bibles. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. And let's take a look at that first section, verses 12 through 19, as Paul asks his first question. What if Jesus wasn't raised? What if he's still dead? What if he's still in the tomb? What if his body is somewhere? 
What if Jesus wasn't raised? What Paul does, starting in this little section, is he turns to address a group of people in this church in the city of Corinth. Now, a little background. Apparently, some people in the church had rejected Paul's teaching that one day, both for the believer in Christ and for the unbeliever in Christ, that there will be a future bodily, physical resurrection from the dead. Paul taught that. The apostles taught that, that some would be raised and their body would be reshaped and reformed to eternal life with God. And others who did not place their faith in Jesus would be raised to eternal torment. Paul taught that. And yet some in the church, maybe even the majority of the church, had rejected that idea. They were influenced by the thinking and the philosophy of their day, which led them to believe that that the idea of somebody coming back to life, being raised from the dead, was just nonsense. So what Paul argues here is this. He says simply, "If, if no one is raised, if there is no future resurrection, do you realize, Christians, the implication of that? Do you realize what that means for you and for your faith? If, if no one is raised from the dead, then not even who? Not even Christ was raised from the dead. And so Paul answers this question in four ways. What if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? Let's read the section together, starting in verse 12 through 19. And then I'd like to point out four implications, four ways that, that Paul answers this question. What if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. Let's read it together, church. But if, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that, that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, more than that, We are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so four questions. One question, four answers. Paul asks the question, what if Jesus wasn't raised? And he answers it, starting in verse 14. The first implication, what if Christ wasn't raised? Then number one, telling others about Jesus, he says, is useless. If Christ was not raised, then telling others about him is absolute uselessness. If Jesus is dead, he says, then telling others about him is simply a history lesson. It's simply telling a history lesson about a historical figure. It's not good news, and it's not the good news that can change someone's life and alter someone's eternity. If Christ is not raised, then telling others about him is useless. But church, Christ is risen from the dead. Amen? 
He's risen from the dead. And so we know that telling others about him is not useless. It's not in vain. In fact, Paul says in, first, uh, in Romans chapter 1, he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so church, Christ is alive. So tell others about the risen Jesus. Number two, he asks the question, what if Christ wasn't raised? And he answers it, number two, if Christ was not raised, then not only is telling others about Jesus useless, but trusting in Jesus is also useless. And of course, the two go together. If Jesus is dead, then placing our personal faith in him for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins is utterly useless. The great pastor, Warren Wiersbe, once told this story in one of his sermons, and I'd like to retell it to you this morning. He tells the story of a Muslim that he met who lived in Africa and converted to Christianity. And some of his friends, of course, were asking him, why, why did you do that? Why have you become a Christian? And the man answered in this way. He said, well, it's, it's like this. Suppose you were going down a road, and the road suddenly forked in two directions. And, and you didn't know the way. You didn't know which way you were supposed to, to take. And, and, and yet there were, there were two men in the fork, in the road. One was dead, and one was alive. Which one would you ask to go which way? Which one would you ask which way to go? And of course, his point is simply this. If Christ is dead, if Christ is dead, then trusting in him is useless. Paul, in another letter, Romans chapter 4, says this. He says that the resurrection is the proof, that the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that Jesus' sacrifice for us was accepted by God the Father. Verse 25, he says this, He, speaking of Jesus, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Of course, we know that Jesus isn't dead. We know that Jesus is alive and that He's alive. And so, personally, placing your faith in Jesus is not at all vain, but it is powerful. It is effective for the forgiveness of your sins and your eternal life. And so if you are here this morning and you have never personally trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then friend, the most significant thing that you can do today is to place your faith in Jesus because He is alive and He paid for your sins and He can forgive you of all your transgressions. Number three, we've seen a couple implications. If Jesus wasn't raised, well then telling others about him and trusting in him, it's useless. But there's a third. If Jesus was not raised, then testifying about him is lying. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. He says, we then are found to be false witnesses about God. Here's the deal. If Jesus is dead, if Jesus is dead, then we, those of us who preach and teach and share and speak of what Jesus has done in our life, if Jesus is dead, then we should be talked about with the most infamous of liars and perjurers in all of history. Benedict Arnold, Richard Nixon, Bernie Madoff, Barry Bonds, 
Bill Clinton, and the list goes on and on. But of course, church, we know that Christ is alive. We know that he is risen. And so when we speak about his resurrection, when we talk and share, and when we share together, he is risen. And when you say he is risen indeed, you're not lying. You're telling the truth because Christ is alive. Number four, what if Jesus wasn't raised? Well, there's a fourth implication. Paul says this, if Jesus wasn't raised, then terminating, terminating in Jesus is hopeless. That is, dying with our faith in Christ is without hope. I'd like to read verses 18 and 19 again. Paul says this, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are what? Are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, We are of all people most to be pitied. I'd like to share a story. One of my favorite authors, his name is Gary Thomas, and he tells the story of uh, the former vice president who then later, of course, became uh, the president, George Bush. But uh, this was when he was VP, and he was attending, as of course a high-ranking government official, the funeral of the former Soviet Union, the communist Soviet Union president, Brezhnev, and he tells this story in one of his books, and I'd like to read it to you. He says this, Bush, Bush was deeply moved by a silent protest carried out by the former president's widow. She stood motionless by the coffin until seconds before it was closed. Then, just as the, soldier, as the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife performed uh, an act of great courage and hope a gesture that must surely rank as one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. He writes this, She reached down and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. There, in the citadel of secular, atheistic power, the wife of the man who had run it all, hoped, hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life and that that life was best represented by Jesus who died and rose again. If Jesus is dead, what Paul is saying here is that if Jesus is dead, then Bill Nye, you know who Bill Nye is, right? Bill Nye the science guy. If Jesus is dead, then Bill Nye the science guy is right when he says these words. It's very hard to accept, he says, It's very hard to accept for many of us that when you die, it's over. It's over. Now that is true if Jesus is dead. Church, Jesus is not dead. He is risen. And as Christians, we have the certain hope of eternal life and a future resurrection so that when we die as Christians, it is not at all hopeless. It is hopeful Because Christ is alive. Amen? Amen. Amen. So Paul has asked the first question. The first question in verses 12 through 19 was this. What if if Jesus wasn't raised? And he's given us four implications. He moves now. He transitions in verses 20 through 58. We'll just see a handful of select verses here. His focus shifts on from the question, what if Jesus is dead to the fact, to the assertion that Jesus is indeed alive. He focuses on the fact that Jesus is indeed raised. 
And one commentator says of this section, he says, the consequences of this fact that Jesus is alive are, more glori- are, are, are as glorious as the effects of his not being raised are dismal. And so what he does is he gives us more Easter implications, four of them that I'd like to point out for you in verses 20 through 58. Number one, verses 20 through 23. What is reality? What is true because Jesus was raised? Well, number one, Paul says, because Jesus is alive, we too who place our faith in him, we too will be raised from the dead. Let's read verses 20 through 23 together. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, Paul says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each, each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. This is what Paul is saying, church. He's saying that Jesus' resurrection, his literal, physical, bodily resurrection from the, from the grave, is the basis for the certainty of my resurrection and your resurrection if you have faith in Jesus. And not only is it the basis of our certain future resurrection, but our future reunion with our loved ones, those who have gone before us in the faith, we too will be with them. In one of his latter moments, Benjamin Franklin, we all know who that is, penned his own epitaph. Uh, he, of course, I don't, as far as I know, didn't profess to be a born-again Christian, and yet certainly he was influenced by the teaching of the day, and Paul's teaching here in particular, of the resurrection of the dead. And uh, this is what he wrote. I'd like to read it to you, his own epitaph. He wrote this, The body of B. Franklin, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But, but the work shall not be wholly lost, For it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. This is what Paul is talking about. We have an incredible hope as Christians that though when we die, our bodies decay, God, one day at the coming of Christ, will refashion, recreate our bodies. He will unite our bodies with our spirit to be perfect, without pain, without sin, without disease, without struggle, without death, forever and ever with him and with our friends and family and Christians that have gone before us. So church, thank God. Thank God that Christ is risen because we too who have faith in him will someday be raised. Number two, what is true? What is reality? Because Christ was raised. Well, he gives us a second implication. If you look ahead a little bit in your Bibles at verse 30, 31 and 32, because Christ is alive, we can take risks. We can live a risky kind of life. Let's read together verses 30 through 32a. Paul says this, and as for us, speaking of he 
and his apostolic band. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? So see, church, what Paul is saying is he's taking a page from the playbook of his own life. And he's saying, look at my life. Look at how risky it is. He, he uses his own risk-taking, kind of daredevil-ish for the gospel kind of life. And, and, and he says, it's a testimony to the certainty that Jesus is raised and the certainty that, that he too and we too in Christ will be raised. This is the logic that he uses he, he, he says this, why, why risk so much? Why would I risk so much in this life if this life was all that I had? Why would I, why would I risk it? <clears throat> and if there was no reward in the future, he says, because Christ is alive and because I too will be raised from the dead, I can be risky with my life. Church, I don't know about you, but if I look at my life, I don't know if the adjective risky would really describe me. And it should. And not just me, because I'm a pastor. You too, because you're a Christian. And because Christ is alive. And because you too will be raised to new life. And this is not the only life that we have. So we can be risky for Christ. Do we die daily? Of course, not literally. But, but do we put our reputation, our comfort, our assets, our time, our schedule on the line for the sake of advancing God's kingdom? What Paul says is that, listen, you can afford a little risk in your life because Christ is alive and you too will be one day. Number three, implication number three, because Jesus is alive, because he is risen from the dead. Paul goes on to say, not only can we live risky lives, he says we can live holy lives. Notice what he says at the tail end of verse 32, running through verse 34. Paul says this, if the dead are not raised, and then he quotes kind of a pagan saying of the day, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we what? Die. For tomorrow we die. Paul says this, do not be misled. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. If you hang out with folks like that, you might begin to think that way. And then you might live that way. Verse 34, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some, of, some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. This is what Paul is thinking. This is what he means. He says, if there is nothing after death, if there is nothing after death in this life is all that we have, then why not live it up? Why not be a hedonist at heart. What is a hedonist? A hedonist is someone who lives for pleasure. He says, why not pursue as much pleasure as you can in this life? And why not avoid as much pain as you can in this life as the Epicurean philosophers of his day suggested? You know, many people today, maybe even some of you, still live this way. We, we follow Sheryl Crow's advice. We sing the chorus together. All I want to do is have some fun, right? That's what our world says. 
But since Christ is risen, because Christ is not dead, this life, it's not all there is. What we do in this life matters. Number four, one final implication. Because Christ is alive, Paul says at the very end of this chapter, in verse 58, because Christ is alive, not only can we take risks, not only can we pursue holiness, but we can persevere. We can persevere because Jesus is alive. Let's read verse 58 together. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because, here's the reason, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain because Christ is alive and because at your resurrection you will be rewarded so we can persevere is what Paul says. He concludes what is his magnus, his magnus opus on the resurrection by saying, listen, Christians, don't be moved away from serving Christ by hardship. Don't be moved away from serving Christ by trial. Don't be moved away from serving Christ by loss. Don't be moved away from serving Christ because it's difficult, because you're discouraged. Know that Christ is alive. And notice what he says. He, there's a play on words. He says, he says, because we know that what we do for Jesus is not what? It's not in vain. It's not in vain. He's used that word before. Earlier in verses 14 and 17, he said that preaching Jesus is in vain and that trusting in Jesus is in vain if Christ is not raised. But he says, church, Jesus is alive. And so listen, persevering in Jesus, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. No Sunday school class that you will ever teach, no patient moment with your kids, and God knows I need more of those, no attempts to fight sin, no act of service to your spouse, no gift that you ever give to the church or anyone in need, no service that you do behind the scenes that no one ever recognizes, none of that is ever in vain because Christ is risen. So, by seeing what life would be like if he was never born, George Bailey from the movie It's a Wonderful Life was able to see He was able to see the implications of his birth. He was able to see the implications of of the historical event of his birth and of his life. So at, at the end of the movie, he could say, it's a wonderful life, right? Similarly, Paul has done the same for us this morning. He's helped us see that life, he's helped us see what life would be like. He's helped us see what life would be like if Jesus was never raised. He says, number one, telling others about him would be useless. Number two, trusting in him yourself would be useless. Number three, testifying about him and his resurrection would be a lie. And number four, terminating in him would be hopeless. And he moves on to say, but, but, because Christ is alive, there are implications. Number one, we will be raised. We can live a life of risk taking for the gospel. We can pursue holiness and we can persevere in the faith so that we at the end of our life can say, he has been a wonderful savior. I began the morning by making this assertion. I began the morning by saying that the fact of the resurrection 
and that the resurrection of Jesus is the single most significant event in all of human history. Friends, it is the most important event in all of human history. And that is not in question. I'd like to close with this. What is the question? What is the question? The question is this. Is the resurrection of Jesus the single most important event in your history? The single most important event in your life? Have you repented of trusting anything or anyone else? Have you come to the place where you have recognized that you are a sinner and that you rightly deserve God's just judgment? But God, in His great mercy, in His great love, has not punished us to hell immediately. He has given us a Savior. He has paid for our sins Himself by sending His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross, which is what we remembered on Good Friday, and then to conquer death and sin and Satan, which is what we celebrate today on Easter. Have you come to the place in your personal history where where the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus has become a personal event, where it has become true of you and you have personally received Jesus You have received this gift of salvation which can never be earned, can only be received by faith and trust and belief in what he's done and been forgiven, been saved, received eternal life. And if you never have, if you doubt that, well then we're going to pray and then we're going to end our service with a blessing. But I want you to pray alongside me in your heart and you can today have your history altered. You can have your eternity changed because of the historical fact that Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the morning. Thank you for the celebratory mood that we can come and rejoice because Christ is alive. Father, if there is a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, a young person here today, and they don't know if they've trusted in Jesus, they don't know if they've turned to place their faith completely and wholly and altogether in Him, asking Him to forgive their sins, asking them, asking Him to come into their life, asking Him to give them eternal life, knowing that He is a kind and gracious Savior, then may they pray this prayer with us today. God, I recognize that You exist, that You are good, and that You have created me for a relationship with you, and yet in my sin and in my rebellion, I have turned from you and pursued other gods and pursued living for myself. Today, I recognize and turn and repent from my sin and ask, recognizing that you sent your one and only Son so that if anyone believes in him, he won't perish and he will have eternal life. And so now, the best that I can, I receive the gift of salvation and eternal life and forgiveness of sins, thrusting my trust and my hope solely on the person and work of Jesus who died and rose again. Thank you for saving me, God. And thank you for giving me new life as you gave your son new life that Easter morning. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's close our service this way. I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to recite an Easter blessing from Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, 
equip you with every good thing for doing his will, and may he work in you what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. See you next week. Thanks for coming.